Hello, and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, my name is Mario Lanza, and again, welcome to uh, the show here. This is the podcast where we take movies that are uh, perhaps a little underrated, underloved, or in today's case, kind of unknown, and we hype them up a bit and try to basically introduce movies to the world to an audience that may not have seen them before. So, uh, special treat today. This is the first horror movie we are doing on Staff Picks, and I'm very excited about this because horror is my uh, my greatest love, and it is funny. I am a comedy writer in real life, but if you ask me what type of movies I know the best, horror movies, obscure horror movies, this these are absolute all my babies we're going to talk about. And today's movie is a uh, 1974 movie called Black Christmas, commonly known as the grandfather of all modern slasher films and we'll uh get into that uh we have a lot to say about this one i just have so much to say about this one and i I don't want to bury the lead too far in here so without further ado let me introduce my guest for today Uh, joining me to talk about black christmas is a uh reader of mine and in fact i uh i have very uh fond feelings for this as as my co-host today especially because i would say he is a devotee of mine and i say that because Several years ago on MySpace, I wrote a uh, website called uh, 10 Great Horror Movies Most People Have Never Seen. And this guy, Mike, was one of my readers. He's seen all the movies. Basically, he's seen everything I've ever recommended. He's one of my longest-running readers on the Internet. And it's actually been reciprocated over the years where he's now recommending stuff to me where I'm watching. Like, he recommended Arrested Development to me. He recommended Nathan For You, Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So, basically, my guest today is a younger version of me. And so, welcome to the show, Michael Feeney. Thanks, Mario. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, that's a big, uh, a big uh, thing to step into, being known as the younger version of you. But uh, hopefully, I can uh, live up to it a little bit. <laughs> well, the younger version of me was quite the nerd. Are, are you a nerd, or were you a nerd? I have to just get that out in the open here. Absolutely, growing up, I, you know, I was cool probably in my twenties a little bit, and now that I'm in my thirties, I'm back to the way I used to be. You know, just an older version. Excellent. Welcome back. Welcome back to the club. It's good to have you aboard. Thank you so much. I was cool for about a decade, and at least I think, but not anymore. And now you're doing podcasts about obscure horror movies, so you're back, swung back yeah. to not being cool again. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's catch people up here, because I can guarantee most of my readers have never seen Black Christmas before. This is a obscure movie, even by obscure movie standards. And uh, let me sit, let me get it out in the open here. How did you first hear about Black Christmas? Was it through me, as I have always hoped? No, man. Like uh, I remember seeing it 12 years ago in theaters. It was great. <laughs> Black Christmas 2006. Yeah, oh. you're, you're just gonna mess people up now. Okay, let's. We're, we're gonna get this right out in the open here. Black Christmas, hugely influential horror movie. Like it's maybe the biggest modern horror movie out there. Was remade 32 years later in 2006. And I swear to God, if you only saw the remake in preparation of this podcast, Mike, I'm going to hit you. <laughs> not, I'm kidding. I've actually never seen it. I don't intend to see it, ever see it. That's the correct answer, yeah. <laughs> we haven't really gotten into this too much in Staff Picks. You haven't heard my, my random biases and hatreds of things because it's a podcast about love. We just talk about things we like. But remakes and reboots can die a fiery death in hell to be honest i mean <laughs> sorry i'll just maybe I'll, I'll tone it back a little i don't like remakes and i don't like that they use the name black christmas just to make a modern horror movie that has nothing to do with the original one so anyway good i'm glad so we are talking about the 1974 one here correct absolutely all right excellent that, this is why you're my favorite reader mike thank you 
Okay, so uh, to catch people up here, I'm going to give you a little backstory on where we are, what this movie's all about, um, kind of its legacy over the years. And again, this is something, this is a movie I didn't even see or hadn't even heard of until about 15 years ago. So now I'll get the serious answer. You had, when did you first hear of Black Christmas, Mike? Okay. Um, well, little, just a short little background. I grew up on slasher films. Uh, my siblings are a lot older than me. I grew up on like Jason, Freddy, 80s stuff. I'm, you know, I was born in the 80s, but mostly I'm a 90s kid. Um, and then I remember, I forget, when we got the internet in 1999. Roughly around then, I heard about this movie, Black Christmas. Um, I tried to find it forever online. Everywhere I found it was expensive. Like I, I couldn't, you know, I, I was too young to have my own credit card. I couldn't even buy it. I was too afraid to ask someone to get it for me. Went to a trip to San Francisco right after high school in 2005. Uh, random uh, movie store. It was sitting there for five bucks. I bought it from a couple of hippies. Uh, watched it that trip. And I've been a fan of it ever since 2005. But it was for about a decade. Uh, it was like an obscure hunt for me to try to find it. Mm-hmm. And when I finally saw it, I loved it. Yeah, it's my my story is very similar to that. I I just vaguely heard about it. I just for years I would collect these these names of movies, horror movies especially in my head that I wanted to see one day. And obviously before the internet it was a lot harder to do. You had to find them in a video store or find it in a flea market or something. And it wasn't until I remember in the 2000s, I forget when, but uh John Carpenter did a a, a commentary on his Halloween, his 20-year Halloween DVD. And he just talks about all the inspirations for Halloween and where it came from. And as a budding horror movie expert, I was always under the impression that Halloween was the grandfather of horror movies. It was like the first modern slasher movie. It begat Friday the 13th, which begat Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, Halloween was always considered the original. And then on his commentary, John Carpenter's talking about, well, this is just my homage to Black Christmas, which came out four years earlier. And I'm like, what was that? And so that, that really got the wheels turning in my head. And there was actually two movies John Carpenter uh, mentions as an influence. He mentions Westworld, the one with Yul Brenner that he patterned Michael Myers after the unkillable uh, gunslinger, and then Black Christmas, which he said basically that Halloween is almost a direct ripoff of Black Christmas. And that was really to the point that I realized one day I will be doing a podcast about this movie. If, if it influenced Halloween, it's got to be an important movie. So that was one of those things, but it was just, it was hard to find. And like you, I just found it in like a Sam Goody or some uh, DVD store that just sold old used DVDs. And there it was for like five bucks. And I'm like, I got to grab that. So I grabbed it and watched it. And I was just blown away at how, I wouldn't say it's like the best horror movie ever, but it's like, there's so many aspects of it that are so interesting and influenced so many movies later. I agree. Um, yeah, I didn't know about the, the Westworld thing. I definitely knew about the Black Christmas thing. I had heard, um, did he mention that like the, orig- the original idea for a sequel was supposed to be a sequel for Black Christmas, ultimately it morphed into Halloween. Is mm-hmm. that the case? I believe that's what I heard. Yeah, I'll get into that in a second. That's exactly what I was going to get to. Yeah, that's... Okay, so I'll do the little history of Black Christmas here to, to catch people up. In uh, 1973, 74... There really had never been an equivalent to these, what we know as slasher movies later. I mean, you'd had Psycho, you'd had some Italian horror movies that are kind of like this, but an American mainstream like slasher movie, there was no such thing yet. And so the screenwriter, and I, I, I hate that I don't remember his name, I should probably know it, but I don't. Some, he, there were some murders that had happened in Montreal in the late 70s, the early 70s. And so this guy wrote a screenplay kind of based around those murders, and it was called Stop Me. And the point of the movie was it was going to be a killer. He's killing these people, and you never find out who he is, and you never 
they never reveal his identity. That's kind of be the, the catch in the movie here that you never find out anything about him. And it was kind of unheard of at the time. Movies didn't, didn't, uh, have storylines like that. Can you think of anything around that area? You're a slasher guy. That's even close to that storyline in the early seventies. Uh, to be honest, no. Yeah. I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. I thought maybe you knew a movie there that I'm not aware of. Cause I'm not aware of anything around that era. What you, you'd get is stuff like the other or, uh, there's one called The Touch of Satan, uh, Exorcist. Like you'd get lots of devil movies around then and stuff like that. But again, the slasher movie until Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there really there's nothing like that. So anyway, they have this storyline for a movie called Stop Me. Oh, and they also uh, wanted to work in some of the uh, the old urban legend about the uh, the the calls are coming from inside the house. That's another thing that happens in Black Christmas. So all these aspects were worked together into this this screenplay. It didn't get made. No studio would touch it. It's like, no, we don't do movies. It's just people murdering each other. Like, there's no re- there's no audience for that, of course, right? <laughs> That's never going to catch on. <laughs> so anyway, so Stop Me isn't going to get made until a, a director named Bob Clark gets involved. And this is where it becomes really interesting because you're aware of Bob Clark's other movies he made after Black Christmas, correct? Uh, yep. Uh, uh, Christmas Story, for one. <laughs> Christmas Story, well, yes. A sequel, I guess, in a way. Yes. You know, similar stories. <laughs> yeah, Bob Clark is famous for really four movies. He made one called Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, which is a horror movie from the early 70s. I don't happen to think it's anything all that special. Then he made uh, Black Christmas. And then about, what, 10 years later, he made Porky's, which is, yes. really, if you grew up in the 80s, you know Porky's. It's a movie about showers and boobs. And then he made A Christmas Story. And those were the, his four biggest movies. So... This is a movie made by the guy who made A Christmas Story, which I think is fantastic. Have you heard, Mario, that he was an executive producer in the Black Christmas remake? I did not hear that. I mean, I'm assuming he got paid one way or another because it was his movie. He was an executive producer, and that's what killed him. <laughs> there you go. I really hope the family of Bob Clark not listening. <laughs> no, yeah, that's. I did not know he was an executive producer, so... It's possible the remake did have a little Bob Clarkian aspect to it, but I, I don't want to get too much into it because I hate remakes. So, again, we'll skip over that for now. All right, so, yeah, so Bob Clark gets involved. He rewrites this screenplay where, okay, instead of just a guy running around in the park killing people, we'll move it into a college, a, col- a college sorority. And it'll be a guy, he's hidden in the sorority, he's silently killing the girls one by one. It'll be creepy. And we'll do lots of point-of-view shots. We'll keep it ambiguous. You never see who the killer is. You never see the ending. And it'll be kind of a cool little movie. And that, indeed, is how Black Christmas came about. And, again, if you know Halloween, that's fairly close to the Halloween storyline. And John Carpenter will freely admit, oh, yeah, I'm just ripping off Black Christmas. Yeah, that's that's the one thing I, I, I have heard. I heard the Halloween, you know, is, is uh, originally there was a concept written. Um, the original concept for Halloween was supposed to be or was morphed into the sequel, um, was morphed into Halloween, ultimately. The, the, the sequel for Black Christmas initially, uh, eventually became what we know as Halloween. Yeah, and that's the thing that's really important here. Again, if you haven't seen this movie, if you're just kind of going into this fresh, Black Christmas, this hugely influential horror movie, that there'd never been anything like it before, and the director, Bob Clark, had mused, oh, someday maybe I'll do a sequel and I'll set it on Halloween instead of Christmas. John Carpenter took that, ran with it, and will fully admit, oh yeah, it's really... I only made my movie because Bob Clark suggested it, and it's really a, a unofficial sequel to Halloween or to uh, Black Christmas. And that's, that is why this is a big movie that more people need to know about. Absolutely. I'm sure most people don't know that, even though he's admitted it, really admitted it. So 
we're going to get into the plot here of Black Christmas, and this is what I love talking about. This is a this is a nasty, evil, unsettling movie. It's just disturbing. What's I'm tr- I'm curious to think what the first time you saw Black Christmas, what was your reaction to it? I made my friends watch it. I was in San Francisco. Um, I was 18. You know, I I. I, I didn't know what to expect. I, I went in thinking, you know, oh, this is a slasher movie. I've heard about it online. Um, uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't read up too much into it. So it, it shocked me how there was no blood involved. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like, like I said, I grew up with Friday the 13th and Jason. Um, at the time, uh, I guess my horror palette wasn't fully cleansed. I, you know, I'd never seen anything like it before. So to me, it was very unique. Um, I don't know if you agree, it had the same feeling when you first saw it, how, you know, obviously I grew up with Halloween, um, and I saw the similarities. Mm-hmm. Obviously at the time I didn't know the connection between the two. Yeah. I was, I was surprised in a, in a, in a good way. Yeah. The thing that jumps out to me about black Christmas, Christmas and really any horror movie from that era has how, is how bloodless they are. And that's one thing that I, it's, you know, horror slasher movies in the eighties got this bad reputation, just, Friday the 13th kind of started it. I mean, you can say maybe the Argent, Dario Argento kind of started it as well, but like the buckets of blood theory where it's just slash, slash, special effects, gore. But these movies before that almost have no blood in them. Like Black Christmas, there's very little blood in it. Halloween has even less. Like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is almost bloodless as well, if I recall. It's like, and that's the thing with these 70s slasher movies, why I'm impressed by them so much, because they're not just trying to beat you over the head with gore. Like, they're just trying to unnerve you. Like, there's just point of view shots. Like, the camera work is very claustrophobic. The storyline is just kind of evil. And it's one of these things they they don't let you off the hook with an easy reveal at the end. Like, in this movie, you don't know anything about the killer. There's literally nothing we know about the killer by the end of the movie here. And again, it's just, all I can say is it's an unsettling movie. It just kind of sits with you. Right. Would you even call it a slasher? I would not. I don't think it's a slasher movie. Uh, I agree. Yeah, it's it's that's an excellent question. Yeah, it's the slasher movie again. Halloween is not a slasher movie. Halloween is a suspense movie that happens to have a couple kills along the way, and Black Christmas is really not much different. Absolutely agree. Okay, um, I guess it was the '80s brought upon the slasher genre and all the bloodletting and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, Friday the Thirteenth, Nightmare on Elm Street. Once they started going, and then the movies were all trying to top one another, like a. Uh, Halloween 2, I know there was pressure on John Carpenter to add some blood to it because they had to compete with Friday the 13th now. So, yeah. So they were, again, we're in our own little genre here, and uh, I can't say enough about 70s horror movies. They're absolutely my favorite decade of horror movies. And again, Black Christmas. Oh, man, we're going to have fun getting into this one. <laughs> this is one, if you haven't seen it before, there's a whole different mindset into making like a movie like this. Like, this is expected to be a decent movie with a decent storyline good acting suspense drama and maybe some kills like the like that's not the point of this movie isn't to just absolutely like freak you out it's like just to get under your skin and make you think about it and that's it's it's there's some there's some trivia about black christmas i'm going to get to later in the movie and this is my uh this will really freak people out when they hear this one i I think you know what i'm going to talk about right i mentioned it in my column when i wrote about it i'm pretty sure i know what you're talking about um and you know more about that subject, so I'll let you cover that when we get to it. Yeah, okay. Once once we get to the Ted Bundy connections, I'll wet your whistle here. This is a, this is a movie, I don't swear much on this podcast, but this one will freak you the F out, because there's some, there's some really eerie parallels in this movie that are, will really uh, unnerve you. Okay, so let's get... Have you watched, you, have you watched this movie recently? Is it fresh in your head? 
I watched it uh, earlier in the week. Okay. Do you want to walk us through kind of the storyline here at the start of the movie? Basically, um, yeah. Like, you, you, you pop it in uh, right away. Just the shot of the house, uh, Black Christmas, the title comes up. Um, and they waste no time. This movie's not screwing around. Uh, you know, they show they show the house. Uh, the you know, all of a sudden, you know, the camera starts to move. Very similar to Halloween. Uh, the one thing I, I noticed that I, I really liked was the shaky camera movement heading to the window, and it's it's someone creeping on the sorority house. And you know, they slowly, uh, you know, pan up, and you you see you see hands, and then this person um, climbs up into the house and up into the attic. Um, so yeah, and then uh, I love the shot. There's one shot that it pans from one of the girls up in the hallway, and it slowly pans up to the uh, to the uh, entryway into the attic, showing that this person is there. This movie's not messing around; they're wasting no time. Yeah, like you said, the, it opens with a steady, not really a steady cam. They hadn't invented the steady cam, but it's a, a harness over the cameraman's shoulders. He's climbing up the trellis, and it's again, it's very reminiscent of Halloween. And there's all this snow outside, and you hear Christmas singing and Christmas carols. And, yeah, so this is the story of girls in a sorority house. And there's this freak who's entering the house. He climbs up this trellis, lives, goes in the attic. And, really, that's the start of the movie. That's literally the first two minutes of the movie. And there's no backstory, no exposition. We don't know who this guy is. You just see it all through his eyes. So he climbs in their house, and uh, we're in the middle of a holiday party. And this is where we get... Uh, the cast in the movie, what do we have here? We have uh, Margot Kidder. This is one of her big movies. Uh, you may know her from Superman. She played Lois Lane, and uh, she absolutely steals every scene she's in in this movie. We have, let's see, uh, Olivia Hussey as our star, Jess. She was, before this, she was known for being in the Romeo and Juliet movie. And little trivia, that is a movie, I don't know if they still show it in schools, but for years they showed Romeo and Juliet in schools. And which is shocking because there's full nudity in that movie. And not only that, but I believe Olivia Hussey was underage. So there's full underage nudity in that movie. And they showed it in schools for years. So this is the other movie she's known for. <laughs> and then uh, we have uh, John Saxon, who is also in The Nightmare on Elm Street later, playing the cop. And those are the uh, main stars. Am I leaving anybody out there? Um, I think they're probably the big names. Oh, Andrea Martin. Sorry. Andrea Martin... Later, as a very famous comedian on SCTV, which you may be too young to know about her, but yeah, she was later became a very famous comedian, and she plays uh, Phil, I think the uh, the best friend in this. So it's a, it's yeah. a and and all these people are Canadian. This is a Canadian movie through and through. Bob Clark was working in Canada at the time. To this day, this is one of the most famous, notorious, successful Canadian films ever made, I believe. But yeah, so it's all Canadian, all filmed at the University of Toronto. Just a big name cast, and I will say there's some trivia that you might not even know, Mike. Is that um, Andrea Martin was her role was originally supposed to be played by Gilda Radner from Saturday Night Live. Gilda is another Canadian. Gilda was hired for this role. She had to drop out to join the cast of Saturday Night Live, and she was replaced by Andrea Martin. But we very nearly had Gilda Radner in this movie as well. I didn't know that. That's interesting. There you go. All right, so, and now we get to the part of the movie. It happens very soon. All the sorority girls are at a party. They're just, you know, milling around, drinking, just having a good time. And this is when the phone calls start. And there, if there's one thing you will remember about Black Christmas, if you see it, it is the phone calls. I agree. And I love that um, it doesn't start at, when the movie starts. It's already happening. There's a line where uh, the man who's um, in the house is calling them and, uh, they pick up, and the line is, it's the moaner again. So this has been going on for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. That's 
Yeah, so they get these phone calls, and they're really graphic phone calls. This is a, <laughs> we're going to test the limits of what we can get away with on this podcast. But yeah, so the girls pick up the phone, and there's a guy they know as the moaner. He calls them all the time. Apparently, it's a well-known thing, and he's just going on. Just He's moaning, making noises, lots of voices, and then he starts saying some very sexual things to them. And I don't, I'm trying not to get too explicit a rating here, but... He's going to do things to their genitals, perhaps, and maybe other things like that. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's a very unnerving thing, these phone calls. And, like, he's doing multiple voices at once. Like, they're going men and women and screaming and crying. And, yeah, it's just, <laughs> what was your reaction the first time you saw it? I will say, I just showed this movie recently to my daughter. I show it to all, I show all these horror movies to my kids. I'm going to try and get them, intro- uh, in, uh, introduce them to movies that I grew up with and, and sitting through the first uh, prank call in Black Christmas was rather uncomfortable. I imagine um, he, you know, he references that he's going to go in a certain direction with regards to their genitals. Yes. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't have a daughter, but I imagine that was not the most comfortable thing. Um, how did she take it? She was unnerved by this movie. This is my again, my daughter's seventeen. I show her a lot of horror movies. This is one that kind of stuck with her. This one got under her skin a little bit, and it wasn't even even specifically that scene. But yeah, this movie doesn't play around. <laughs> no. Okay. Yeah. So. So yeah. So uh, the moaner is. Uh, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this. And then Margot Kidder, who plays a character named Barb, just a smartass. You know, she's from the city. She doesn't. She doesn't take any crap from people. She's like, oh, what did she say? Stick your tongue in a light socket or something like that. I believe so. Yeah. I- I like her character, especially right from the start. Um, it almost unarms this voice. It, for me, like with her laissez-faire attitude toward this voice, it, it made it less, made, made it easier to take. It almost calmed me for a second. Um, knowing what happens later, you know, obviously it didn't work out too well. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of comic relief, especially in the first half of this movie that kind of diffuses the tension because you have yeah. this really horrible prank call. And again, I, if there's any women out there who have received obscene phone calls from people, I, it's a horrible, terrifying thing, I'm sure. In this movie, they are about the worst you're ever going to hear. And he's going on about what he's going to do to them. And Margot Kidder says, oh, you stick your tongue in a light socket or something. Go away. Go to hell. And then he just lowers his voice and says, I'm going to kill you. I love that line. <laughs> yeah. It's I enough to bring it up. <laughs> just so calm, you know, gibberish, and then I'm going to kill you. Yeah, very matter of okay. fact. All right, so here we go. So the prank calls have been coming for a while, and then uh, he says he's going to kill them. And unaware to them, he's been up in the attic. He's living in their attic right now, and this is going to become a plot point later where it's going to become important later. So anyway, so, you know, it's Christmas time. They're all finishing their party, and uh, they're all getting ready to go on vacation, go on trips with their boyfriends or, or families or whatever. And this is where we get the first murder in the movie. Yeah, uh, I believe the character's name is Claire. Claire. Mm-hmm. She she goes uh, she hears noises and you know up in the attic I believe it's uh, the cat I believe it is it her cat it's like the house right. cat Claude yes Claude but uh it, it is it it is uh, Billy right Billy we know the killer his name is Billy we don't that I don't know if that's actually his name that's just the voice he uses on the phone but yeah Billy would be the killer that we're gonna refer to him as. Is he the one? Does he he makes the no, the cat noises? I believe. Oh, I never thought about that. I thought maybe it was just the cat. I didn't ever never even crossed my mind. He was the one summoning oh, them up there. That's how I took it. I took he was uh, you know luring them up there. And a uh, quick little story. When I was watching it earlier in the week, it was still light out. Um, 
I was watching in, in my office. I, I work at home, and uh, I had the door shut. It was still light out. Um, door shut. All of a sudden, right before that scene starts to happen, before the, the as the meows are happening, I hear the door slowly cre- creak open, and a chill went up my spine. This movie is intense. Like I, I felt, it makes you feel like someone's going to break into your house. Yeah, it makes in you, any minute. It makes you feel very unsafe. And it's funny. I was actually watching the director's commentary, and they even talk about that, where they specifically did the camera work to make it as voyeuristic and make it as claustrophobic as possible because they just want the audience to be uncomfortable. That was going to be one of my points later. You feel like a voyeur watching this. Yeah. Like I, I feel like I'm doing something wrong. Um, uh, but anyway, I, the door opened and it, it was my cats. So I thought that was a little interesting. Uh, there's meows happening in this movie. So I was a little uh, creeped out by it, by that scene at the moment. And luckily you went to the uh, flask of vodka hidden in your toilet tank to calm you down. I did. <laughs> I, I, I like what's her name? Miss Mac, Miss Mac Henry. I like to refer to her as Bizarro Mrs. Garrett. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The house mother, perhaps not a paragon of virtue and uh, lack of vice. Yeah. She's seen smoking, drinking, swearing. She has sex posters all over the wall in the sorority. Maybe not the best role model. And again, it's some of the again comic yeah. relief in this movie. There's a lot of little laughs they use to diffuse the tension, and it'll last about half the movie. And then once Mrs. Mack's gone and, and, and uh, Margot Kidder's gone, no more comic relief the rest of the movie. They will not let you off the hook the second half. No. Okay, so let's get back to the first mo- the first murder here. So anyway, yeah, this one girl, Claire, is going upstairs to pack. She's about to leave on a trip with her boyfriend, and she hears a noise in her closet. And she goes over to investigate, as, as you do in horror movies. You investigate the noise. And uh, as she gets to her closet, a man who's been hiding in her closet kind of lunges out with a plastic bag that she had her dresses or suits wrapped in. He stretches it around her face, suffocates her, a very horrible way to go. And this will lead to one of the images in this movie that is really one of the creepiest things I've ever seen in a horror movie, really. We're going to keep cutting back the entire rest of the movie. He will have her body up in the attic, wrapped in plastic around her face with her in a permanent scream on her face as she died suffocating. And we will keep cutting back to this face wrapped in plastic the entire rest of the movie because that's that's Billy's first kill here. That's his little trophy he's going to keep up there. Right, and he he puts her by the window. If you, if you if you stand at a certain point, you could probably see her up there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Canadians don't know how to look up or what their problem <laughs> is, but they're chilling the whole time. You don't want to look up because you get the snow in your eyes. It's always snowing. But yeah, they he literally poses her in the attic, and it's almost like a uh, a psycho type homage with the body up in the attic of the creepy house. Okay, yeah, so that's the first kill in the movie. And again, I can't reiterate enough how bloodless it is. There's not a drop of blood. It's not really, I mean, there's kind of a lunge as he comes out and gets her, but it's not a cheap jump scare with a loud noise. There's no false, you know, false scares along the way. It's played pretty straight for a horror movie, and it's one of these things that I love about movies like this. They don't beat you over the head with the horror effects. They know the horror stands on its own. Some guy just killed a girl in her bedroom, and she was just getting dressed for a trip, and that the horror is enough. You don't need to beat people over the head. Just let the scene breathe, and it works fine. I agree. And to follow up on that point, I love that you know this horrific thing happens, and in between, there's just these moments of calm, just like mundane moments, like they're just going around, living their their life, having conversations, cutting to the to the police station. Um, and leading into the next uh, death scene, like there's not a lot of, there's hardly any buildup to these kills, very little. Yeah. Uh, 
it's unique in that way. Yeah, Halloween does that pretty well as well, although there's the one really long extended scene with the girl in the uh, laundry room that goes on forever until she's killed. Black Christmas doesn't do that. Black Christmas has a story to tell, and again, the kills just kind of happen incidentally along the way to keep the, the ramp up the tension, but they're not... The point of the movie isn't just long extended stalking scenes. All right, so let's see here. So with uh, we've lost our first victim, Claire... And this is where we're going to meet a couple of uh, boyfriends in the movie. And I'm going to mention them for two reasons. One, because one of them becomes very important to the plot. And the other one becomes very important to my Ted Bundy story later. <laughs> so i got to mention, Claire, she's died, she's dead, she's missing. Her father's looking for her like, my daughter was supposed to come home. She was supposed to meet me. Where is she? So it's this big search. And then we go to Claire's boyfriend. His name is Chris Hayden. He is a soccer player, or a, a hockey player. And they're asking, have you seen Claire? Blah, blah, blah. Is she the type to just disappear? And no one seems to know where she is. So that's one boyfriend. And now we're going to meet the other boyfriend in the movie, who is our lead character, Jess, played by Olivia Hussey. We're going to meet her boyfriend named Peter. And Peter will become a major character here. Right. Yeah, I believe he becomes the potential uh, suspect, or they suspect he could be involved with the mystery of Claire not being around anymore. Yeah. Yeah, Peter is going to become our red herring suspect. And it's... The kind of the one aspect of this movie I think that maybe we could have done better with where you have the, the you know the fake red herring to throw everybody off where we kind of know he's a red herring it's kind of it's kind of a wasted storyline but again we're introducing the slasher movie genre so they we can get away with it so anyway yeah Olivia Hussey's boyfriend Peter is a piano player he's very high strung very artistic and uh, I'm just gonna skip through a couple things here he has a very there's a, a lot of stress in the relationship between Jess and Peter where he has a big uh, piano recital coming up. He flunks it. He's going to fail out of the conservatory. And we also find out that Olivia Hussey is pregnant. She wants to have an abortion. Peter absolutely will not agree to an abortion ever. And it's it's got to be one of the first movies. I mean, 1974 was quite early to have an abortion subplot in a movie, wouldn't you think? I agree. It was an intense scene. It took me a little bit out of it because of the giant clan that was on her head. I know <laughs> 70s just kind of is odd to me, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So the abortion subplot comes up, and Peter's very upset. And we're gonna we're gonna set the storyline in motion that Peter is enraged at all these things that are happening. He's gonna be the one that's killing people. So Jess and Peter have a fight. He wants to keep the baby. She wants to to kill it because she has career plans and stuff. Blah blah blah. It's gonna become a big storyline. But anyway, so let's get uh let's get back to the horror part of the movie here. So uh, that's that's where we are at this point. And now we get. Uh, prank call number two. Billy's going to call back. And this is the one Mike and I were talking about uh, on Facebook earlier this week. We were talking about our favorite scenes in Black Christmas. And this is the one you kept referencing. This is the baby phone call. Yes. Uh, I believe he, he, he's a gibbering, doing his thing. And I forget, I forget the name that he keeps shouting out. I didn't take note of it. Um, Agnes. He's like, uh, Agnes, you know, look, uh, watch out for the baby. Um, and, you know, gives a potential... Who knows what he's referring to? Could you know? That's part of the mystery of Billy. Uh, why he is the way he is. Why he's there. Who knows who Agnes is? Could be a mother, a sister, maybe the baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the part. Again, if you haven't seen this movie, if you're going to listen to this and then watch, Billy, he's doing these prank calls to these girls, and he's having full-on dialogues between two different characters. He's got Billy. He's got Agnes. He's got someone else, and they're like, have, they're doing a little role play that someone killed a baby or something like. 
<laughs> and again, it ties in with her subplot of wanting to abort her child, but it's just creepy. Like it's, it's just it's so bizarre. Yeah, it's like one dude doing three voices, and I've I've read all these stories of how they film these uh, prank calls, and again, they're just. Any, it's one of these scenes, the things in the movie that every time the camera will kind of zoom in on the phone and you know a prank call's coming, like you just kind of get filled with dread. It's like they're really uncomfortable to listen to, and that's my favorite thing that a good horror movie can do. Like they make you dread certain things. Absolutely. Correct me from correct me from wrong. Uh, you mentioning whenever the phone rings, you get a little bit creeped out by it. Um, there's no, there's hardly any like intense music in this. Is that correct? Like if the phone rings. They don't, there's no like intense music playing. It's just the phone ringing. Yeah. And that's something, that's something the director Bob Clark did is that he specifically told his sound editors, let the scenes just play out. You don't have to throw in a crash or a cymbal or a big loud ominous noise, like maybe a little unnerving, like a hum of a a low viola or a low cello or something. And that's the thing. He specifically tried to do that. He wants the moments to speak for themselves. So no, there is no cheap music effects drowning out these calls. It works really well. Um, one thing I wanted to say regarding the conversation between Billy and Billy and Billy, uh, the, the voice, the, especially uh, with the the woman, um, I know this came after it. It remind that I couldn't help but think of Psycho mm-hmm. with uh, uh, with Mrs. Bates and and him doing the voices. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if there was there's stuff out there that they took that from Psycho. I know Psycho influenced a lot of things like Halloween and, and Scream and whatnot. Have you heard anything regarding Psycho and Black Christmas Connection? I haven't heard that specifically, but I do have actually something to add on this topic in that my background is in psychology, police psychology, forensic psychology. That's what I studied in college. I wrote my senior thesis in college on serial killers. So I'm quite well versed with kind of the history of how killers evolved in America, how they are portrayed, how the the police view them. And what's really interesting, why I think they portrayed him this way is because up until the mid-70s, it was believed that there was no such thing as a serial killer, that such a thing could not exist in nature. Because they thought that anybody who would kill a lot of people over and over and over had to be a raving lunatic. Like, they, they couldn't fathom there could be someone like a Ted Bundy who could be perfectly normal on the outside and be killing a co every six weeks. Like, they that was not considered empirically possible. That's not how human nature works. So... It was thought up until the 70s that anybody who would be a serial killer or a spree killer would be exactly like Billy. He'd be raving mad, talking in voices, he'd be easy to spot. And that's why, that that was, again, the general belief of what a, a spree killer would be like. So that's what I think is going on here more than anything. They just say, if someone's going to kill a bunch of people, he has to be crazy. So they're just trying to make him as crazy as possible. Right. I hadn't heard of that. Yeah, that's, a, again... You, that they're wandering in my area of expertise here, the history of uh, serial killers in America. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, so the girls are a little worried now because they're getting these prank calls and their friend uh, Claire is missing. They haven't put two and two together that they might be the same thing yet, but they go down to the police report. They file a missing persons report and the cops just kind of blow them off. And the cops are like, uh, she's probably out with a boyfriend, you know, and people don't get murdered. The people don't just, Get killed like like uh, it, again. It was it was believed almost all murders were by an, uh, someone that knew them. Like no, oh, stranger didn't kill him. Strangers don't kill people. Not in the seventies. We don't do that here. So yeah, they don't take her seriously. They just think she's off with her boyfriend. And now we get the secondary subplot, which is one I kind of forgot about. In that there's another girl, not related to the story, but there's another girl in this town who's missing. I was actually going to bring that up. Uh, 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 a lot of times when it comes to movies, I like to make up my own little theories just for my own self mm-hmm. uh, to make it make it more entertaining with regards to the little girl. You know, there's no clear answer. Do you think it was Billy? 
or could there be somebody else out there? I like the idea as well as there's this was just another incident, random, something horrible happening. There's someone else out there as well. Yeah, it's, again, for those who haven't seen the movie, there's another little girl. She's been missing. She's 13. They find her body later in the park. And it's never explicitly mentioned that Billy is the one who killed her. I just always assumed he did. And the movie kind of implies that. But again, they don't spell it out. So yeah, it's it, what's your theory? You don't think, you like to think he didn't do it? It was just another unconnected murder? I'm not sure. I, I, I like it either way. I just wanted to get, get your opinion on it. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I liked, especially when... Um, the body is discovered. You don't see it, mm-hmm. but I, I really like that moment. Yeah, it's a. People have to remember the murder rate rate in Canada in the seventies was like a hundred percent. So people were dropping dead left and right. I made that up. It's making that making I, sure people are listening. Yeah, it's, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's related or not. But yeah, so another girl is murdered, and again, like you said, they don't see the body. There's no gore, no blood. It's just you see the mother's scream when they find the body in the park. And so now, now S is starting to get real in this town. We got a missing girl at the college. We got a dead girl in the park. We got these prank phone calls. And up to this point, the cops aren't really treating it seriously because they're like, ah, this is just college. It's during the holidays. People are leaving. Like nothing's going on. Like this is just a sleepy little town. And so what's going to happen next here? Okay, so we got the uh, so the dead girl is found in the park, and now now the action's going to ramp up a bit. Up in this point, we're halfway through the movie. We've got some characters, we've got some comic, we've got some a one murder, and now the murderer is going to step up his game a little bit. This is where Mrs. Mack is going to uh, meet her fate. That's a bummer, man. I know. You know, he's, he's she's assassin off her her cat. I forget what she calls him. A little prick, I believe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry to the cat lovers out there. I'm one of them. Um, yeah, and I believe I believe he, he calls her up to the attic using well. There's more cat noises. Maybe it's Billy. Maybe it's not. Maybe he's doing the voice of two cats. <laughs> Three. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and then and Mrs. Mac, uh, you know, ultimately has uh, has her booze spread around the house, goes up to the attic, and in uh, one of my favorite shots of the movie, uh, she's so. She's up in the little the little entryway I mentioned earlier. She like she sticks her head up into the attic. She climbs the ladder and is her upper body's in the attic. Her lower parts on the ladder. Um, you see this hook there, uh, like from the point of view of the camera, and it's Billy holding this little hook, and she's just sitting there far off from the camera, um, nowhere to go. She doesn't know what's about to happen to her, and then he gets her with the hook. Yeah. Although first you should point out she sees the dead body of Claire covered covered in plastic, which again, always the money shot in this movie. We're going to keep cutting back to that strangled Claire in plastic screaming. I, I, I love it. Yeah. Although it does beg the question, why did they have a full-on grappling hook up in the attic of a sorority? Right? And, <laughs> and another question I pose is, were, were the, was the attic soundproof? <laughs> you can hear the cat. You can hear every noise the cat makes, yet you can't hear... Large Mrs. Mack getting a meat hook through her head. <laughs> and here, Agnes yelling about the baby and Billy. It's <laughs> an excellent question. Some fine uh, criticism there from Michael Feeney. It's a good point. <laughs> if they had less soundproofing the attic, we would have spared, spared some lives here. So do you think Billy's doing the voice of three cats like, where's the catnip? Morris, where's the catnip? <laughs> <laughs> One of my theories, yes. I like, I'll go with that. <laughs> So Billy's doing the voices of the three cats. Okay, so anyway, Mrs. Mack gets a, a hook through the head, and Billy's got to have a little another souvenir up in the attic. And uh, 
So here we go. So the girls come back to the house, and this is we get uh, prank call number three, where Billy Billy seems to like calling people right after he kills someone. That seems to be his little motif here. And yeah, this is a uh, help me, help me. I know what you did, Billy. And he's going on and on. It's just more of the same. And again, just you just dread when these phone calls are coming. I mean, they're so well done and effective. But like when you're watching, and I can't imagine what it was like seeing this in the theater in '74. Like that phone rings and you just kind of tense up like, oh my God, what horrible thing is he going to say? Because that, that first call really set the tone. Like that, that was some vile stuff heard in a movie in the early 70s. You didn't hear words like that in the movies usually. Right. I wish I could, you know, I wish I knew someone who, who saw it in theaters and to, if they could remember their opinion on it yeah. or even just reviews um, of it back then. Yeah. And see, I'm, I'm 43 and I'm not even old enough to have seen Black Christmas. It came out like I was a baby. So I never couldn't have seen it. I'd, I would have to ask my parents. So yeah, this is, this is a very old, old movie. So I'm curious if we have any listeners who actually did see this in the theater, I'd really like you to get in touch with me. Cause I'm curious what you thought of it, how, what the reaction was to this movie at the time, knowing that there'd been nothing like it ever before. I would also like to hear that. So if you get anyone, pass it along. So let's see here. So we got, uh, so now Jess and the other girls are quite concerned that these calls keep coming. And now we have the dead girl in the park. So now, now they go back to the cops. They report the obscene calls again. They're like, they're getting worse and worse. Like we're a little scared. We're trapped in this house all alone. And the, and Mrs. Mack, who has been murdered, they all think is left, left for a trip with her family, sister. I kind of forget. So anyway, they're, they're sitting ducks now in this huge sorority house. And this is when the tension of this movie is going to start to ramp up now. Now all the humor is gone, and now it's just a 40-minute suspense ride the entire rest of the way. Yeah, once Mrs. Mack goes, uh, all, the, the, all the funny's out the window. <laughs> well, uh, and Margot Kidder's sleeping. She takes like a 26-hour nap here at some point. Yes. <laughs> okay, so anyway, so... Uh, oh, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm skipping over one uh, Margot Kidder scene here, the fellatio scene. I forgot about this one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I forgot about maybe the funniest scene in the movie where the girls go down and repeat the obscene call, uh, report the obscene call, and the uh, cop on duty there is kind of a moron. He doesn't really take them seriously. So Margot Kidder decides, Barb, she's going to play a little prank on him. She goes, well, you can call us at our number. And this is back when they still used exchanges, like little letters at the start of the phone number. So she's like, yeah, our phone number is F-E for fellatio. And then she gives a number. And it becomes a big running joke that the cops make fun of this one cop because he didn't know fellatio was a real word. And again... Not a word I thought I would have heard much in a movie in 1974. Right. Yeah, he, I, I do love that he's he's the one bumbling cop, and the other ones are pretty uh, pretty put together. Yeah. Uh, for a horror movie, you got Lieutenant Don Thompson there mm-hmm. trying to save the day. <laughs> yeah. No, that is another thing that I like about this movie and uh, movies from that era in general is that once you get to the 80s and like the slasher movies become kind of over the top, the People in authority, the adults are all idiots, and it, the cop, the kids are the ones that have to figure it out. But like, the cops are really like John Saxon's literally like really doing his job here. He takes them seriously. He does his best. He's really a good cop. And again, Halloween, even though Loomis is kind of a goofball, he's doing his best. He's not like a, an idiot. He's the one trying to stop everything. So, like the authority figures aren't treated like jokes here. You got the one cop who is, but the other one really is trying to do their job, and they are trying to help these girls. It's a nice little trope of horror movies that changes later once you get up to the 80s all right so here we go so so this is where this is where it starts kicking into high gear now where uh peter and jess have a fight over the baby she wants to have an abortion he doesn't want to let her and he's furious that he's failed his piano audition so he basically threatens her he says uh you're gonna kill my baby she goes it's nothing to you you horrify me to you it's like 
having a wart removed. And then he threatens her. He's like, you're going to be very sorry. And this is where the red herring is going to be. He's going to be the killer. And uh, his words there are going to be quoted by Billy coming up here. I, I, all week, ever since I watched this, Billy's screaming. It's just like having a wart removed has been, has been in my head. Yeah. Just the, the delivery of it. It's just creepy as hell. Yeah. There's two people in the world of horror movies you don't want in your head. You don't want Billy and you don't want Hannibal Lecter. Those are the two. Well, Billy and I have been hanging out all week. <laughs> Good. You and your three cats. Yep. All right. So, yeah. So, so the cop, Lieutenant Fuller, John Saxon, shows up to put a, a uh, trace on their phone. He's going to trace where these obscene calls are coming from. Because he really, he's the one cop that really believes their story. That's like, something's not adding up here. Some bad things are happening. I don't like the sound of these obscene calls. And, uh, and again, I just have to point out, we have a lot of younger listeners that, Back in the day when you were getting obscene calls, like there was no caller ID. You didn't know where it was coming from. So it really was a terrifying thing of who is this stranger just randomly calling me? And that's one thing that's that I think maybe a little lost when you're watching this movie, that there's two things that that happen in this movie that would not happen now. This obscene calls where you don't know where they're coming from and the calls coming from inside the house, which that was technically possible in the 70s and 80s you'd call your own number hang up and then the phone would ring in the house that you really could call inside your own house back then so it was kind of a fun little way you could i just mess with my brother to do that all the time so it's like there was stuff here that would only work in a 70s horror movie it would not be as scary now it's a shame you hadn't seen black christmas back then you could have quoted quoted it to your brother (laughs) yeah i wasn't allowed to see r-rated movies my parents weren't even keen on pg-13 movies so if i'm quoting billy over to the the phone like i would have i would have been uh grounded and stuck in my room for the next 10 years (laughs) yeah you got you have 12 years on me and i'm pretty sure i saw a lot of the slasher stuff before you did (laughs) that's sad but jason was like my babysitter growing up so i would have liked to curse out my brother though that would have been fun Okay, so anyway, so yeah, so the cops are here, they're tracing the call, and they're, and they're saying, if this creep calls, you have to keep them on the line. You have to be there long enough for us to trace the call, because again, we're in the 70s, we have to manually find the machine that's being turned on when the phone rings. It's this whole big process. Okay, so now we're going into the, the end of this movie here. So now Barb, Margot Kidder, is upstairs, and uh, she's taking her 26-hour nap or whatever. She's been asleep for like half the movie. And he comes in with a little glass unicorn statue, and he walks up to her. And do you remember what he says right before he kills her? He, he holds it above her as she's sleeping, and he's, he's got a little quote here. Oh, I forget the line. Okay, he's like, it's me, Agnes, pretty Agnes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. And so then we get the one scene that's even remotely bloody in this movie where he just plunges this little glass unicorn down into her chest as she just barely is groggy and waking up, and it's... It's it's way less bloody than it could have been in the 80s. They would have absolutely butchered her and made it gory. There's a little blood in it, but it's just the way it's shot. You, it's kind of shot behind some other little statues on, that are on her mantelpiece. You don't see the whole thing, but it's just a very violent and horrific scene of him just butchering her in her bed over and over and over with this little glass unicorn. And that's it's probably the most intense scene in the movie, I would say. I agree. It's probably my favorite, yeah. well, favorite kill. It's a little strange to say. But I have a I have a few quirks when it comes to I guess deaths in horror movies things that really get to me. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is uh, people having fun, oblivious to someone dying nearby. Yes. Uh, one example it's 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 a horrible movie, but I don't know if you've ever seen Jaws four. I won't go into too long a tangent <laughs> on it. But right at the beginning of Jaws four, uh, one of the Brody boys is out uh, trying to pull a buoy off out of the water and 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 
ridiculous scene. An arm jumps out and bites his arm off, and he's screaming, bleeding to death, while carolers are singing on the shore. That scene always stuck with me as a kid, mm-hmm. and this is very similar with the kids outside, uh, the carolers, while uh, Barb is, you know, meeting her maker. It, is, it just bothers me. It gets to me a little bit. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough to hear. If you've seen this movie and you know it real well and it's kind of entered your psyche, it's tough to hear little kids singing Christmas carols without thinking of this scene. Because like you said in his uh, wonderful <laughs> aside into Jaws 4 there, where uh, <clears throat> I saw Jaws 4 in the theater, I'm proud to say. I'm sorry. Yeah. For those who aren't aware, Jaws 4 is the movie where the shark is upset that his relatives have been killed, so he follows Chief Brody's wife to the Bahamas out of revenge, which is a wonderful storyline. <laughs> <laughs> and then he roars like a lion. He roars like a lion, and then Michael Caine's in there. It's just, I don't know if that movie is is worth talking about. Maybe someday, but Jaws 4 is a, it's in its own little circle of hell of bad movies. It's terrible. So yeah, so there's all these, so as Margot Kidder's being stabbed by her, this little glass unicorn, Olivia Hussey is downstairs listening to Christmas carols at the door, and it's just, it's, like Michael said, it's a very unnerving scene of innocent children Christmas singing and brutal murder all going on at the same time. You hear the carolers in the background as she's being stabbed. It's, it's just, it's a it's a scene that'll get you. I'll remember this one. Well, to be fair, I mean, I know this, the attic is soundproof, but he's not in the attic. He's in the bedroom. Do you think the kids are there as a distraction and they're disciples of Billy? <laughs> I'm just throwing <laughs> So the kids are in cahoots? Billy and the kids are working together? It's just a theory that comes into my head. I know it's not true, but it's fun to think. Yeah, I don't know if it's canon, but I, I think there is a theory, if one were to go with it, that the carolers are the one who's killed the little girl in the park to frame Billy. There's a theory as of 10 seconds ago. <laughs> it's out there in the universe now. <laughs> Right. So this this whole podcast is about disciples, how I've inspired you through my writings to watch Black Christmas and talk about movies and stuff. And then Billy is teaching these kids to kill like he is. So this whole movie, this whole podcast is about bad teachers teaching bad things to their, their young Padawans. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So anyway, also, if any kids are listening, kill your parents. <laughs> Don't stop there. Yeah. Go beyond. Go beyond. So, yeah, the, the vicious murder of, of uh, Margot Kidder has happened, and now Billy calls again. And this is the first time that the cops get to hear Billy's voice, because the phone is all tapped. And now they get to hear what's going on. And they hear, and this is, uh, <laughs> yeah, Billy, is, uh, Billy reaches a new level of crazy in this one, where he's, he's moaning and crying and screaming, and he's like, don't, Billy, don't, no, kill me, kill me. And he's doing all these voices and stuff. And, and then, at the end of the call, he... Uh, he just lowers his voice and he quotes the exact words that Peter just said to his girlfriend in the house about her abortion. And he's like, it's just like having a wart removed. And like Olivia Hussey's like, oh, my God. And like, that's the thing that kind of tips her off that this killer may be a little closer to her than she re- realizes. And the cops should be realizing that, too. But their first instinct is that the killer's not quoting Peter, that the killer is Peter. And so this is where the divergent opinions will come. Like, this this is a kind of an important scene in the movie where the first time that Billy kind of tips off these in the house. Right, and still, still no one knows. I mean, you know, why would you think that? Only the kids outside caroling, though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're outside snickering about it. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, so right after Billy calls, now Peter calls the, the boyfriend, and he's crying and sobbing, and it kind of sounds like Billy 
just because of the crying and the sobbing. So again, we're doing this red herring thing where Peter is absolutely innocent. He has nothing to do with it, but they're going to, they're the director is trying to set up the fact that he could be the killer. They're going to try to keep it in a uh, open-ended here as we get towards the conclusion. So at this point, really, there's only two people left in the house. You got Olivia Hussey, you got Jess, and then you got her best friend, Phil, again, Andrea Martin, beloved Canadian comic who for some reason is in this movie. And Andrea's about to die. She dies off camera. And so really, it's just Jess at this point. It's just our lone heroine trapped in this house with a killer in the attic and only the cops half-heartedly kind of figuring out what's going on. And this is where we get uh, Billy's last call. This is the one where he calls and he's like, uh, you bitch pig, you bitch pig. And he's going, you know, <laughs> males, females. And he's going, Agnes, baby, where's the baby? Where's the baby? And again, it's like, I just... We've said it before, if there's one thing you're going to remember from this movie, it's these phone calls. There's, Can you think of any other movie that has phone calls like this being used as a weapon against a, a character? Um, At the time, I, I know you can. I know you said it was after the fact when a stranger calls. I, I've never actually seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably have. Does it does it kind of rip Black Christmas off a little bit? It it does a little bit, but then again, they're both based off the urban legend that the callers are coming calls from coming inside the house. So they're both based on the same source material. So I, I don't know if it's necessarily right. a Black Christmas ripoff, but yeah, it's the old trope that yeah, phone right. calls are just slowly becoming more claustrophobic and closing in on this lone girl heroine. But yeah, early '70s, something similar. I, I off the top of my head, I can't I can't think of something that would that didn't use the phone as a weapon like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's see. So this last call, the the quote-unquote bitch pig call, this is where uh, the, the the cops finally have traced it. They finally got kept him on the line long enough, and this is where John Saxon hears, well, the calls are coming from so-and-so address. And he's like, no, that's their address. That's the call they're going to. And the uh, phone text like, no, they're also coming from that address. And this is where he gets the OS. Oh, oh, crap. He just realizes the gravity of the situation. It's, again, the literally the old babysitter's horror story. The calls are coming from inside the house. Right. I love the buildup to the uh, reveal to the cops, to the cops finding out and then obviously delivering the message. But even the, the one tech, like running down the hall. To, uh, it's just like a, a elongated, in a movie that doesn't elongate like the, the creepy parts, this is the one part it does a little bit, and I actually like it. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes from one person to one person, they whisper down the lane, eventually leading to Jess finding out that the calls are coming from inside the house. Yep. I just love the, the way it was done. Yeah, it's really well done, and, and what's funny is that John Saxon, he's out in the field, he can't call Jess at the moment, so he, he has to call his doofy deputy, who's the one who screwed up the police report earlier, and he's like, explain to Jess put down the phone, walk outside. And it's really a tense scene. It's like we're kind of joking about it. This is a really tense scene in the movie. He's like, again, don't don't tell her anything. Don't freak her out. Don't tell her to go upstairs. Just put the phone down, walk outside. We have a policeman outside. That's all she needs to know. So, And John Saxon even tells his little deputy, screw this up and I'm going to murder you. Like, cause it's like this is the moment in the story when Billy's about to get found out. So, so yeah, the deputy calls Jess, lets her know, and... She's very headstrong. She's like, why? What's happening? And he won't tell her. And then suddenly, I think he, he does he drop it or does she get it out of him that, well, the calls are coming from inside the house. Um, I think he's just frustrated and says it yeah. to try to get her to leave because she's not listening. Okay. And Jess, very wonderful, kind human being, could easily walk out the door and escape. But her first instinct is to turn around because she has two friends who are sleeping upstairs and she wants to save them, Barb and Phil. And so she disobeys the cops orders and again a lot of people 
this is a common trope in horror movies, and it, it gets a lot of flack, where people don't escape danger, they walk towards danger, or, like, the heroine doesn't run away when she can. But she's she doesn't realize there's dead yet. So there's there's actually some motivation in this one where she's not doing something dumb. She doesn't realize there's murders yet. All she realizes at this point is that there are obscene calls. She doesn't actually grasp the danger until she goes upstairs, and this is where we get the reveal of the two dead bodies upstairs, and this is where all hell breaks loose. Right. And I, I agree that the her going up the stairs trope, it didn't bother me because I don't know if it's just something about be a hussy, innocence in a way, like not naive innocence, just something about her. She wants to do good and she wants to uh, check on her friends, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, I buy it. It didn't bother me. I thought it was uh, well done. Yeah, I have to I have to take offense at some of these horror tropes. And I just this is kind of a random aside, but Halloween in particular always gets gets crap for that like oh the the survivor does stupid things they don't turn on the lights and then they the one that always galls me is people who have sex die and people who don't have sex don't die and it's a it's a comment on virginity and stuff like that and and i've heard john carpenter in halloween talk about that he's like she didn't survive because she was a virgin she survived because she was paying attention (laughs) like it has nothing to do with virginity and he's like and they put this on my shoulders and every horror movie goes based on that it's like it had nothing to do with that so it's like the same thing in this movie like you can't fault her for going up into the danger because she she has not seen a murder in this movie. That up to this point, she is unaware that any of her housemates have been killed. So it does fit in the story. Right, she's partially deaf. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. She and the soundproofing in the attic has, has saved everybody. And the children. And the children. That's, children are still yeah. running around Toronto to this day, murdering people. <laughs> All right. So yeah. So she goes upstairs. She finds the bodies of her dead friends, and this is where she knows it's serious. And she turns around, and this is a really eerie shot. And literally, this is the most of Billy we are going to see the entire movie. She sees his eyeball staring at her through a hole in the door. Yeah. Did, did, did we see him? Did we see part of his face when he killed Barb as well? When he had the uh, the, the unicorn? Yeah, I think you just see his eyes up, his eyes and hair. Okay. Yeah. And this yeah. is, again, one of the fantastic things about this movie there's no explanation. You know nothing about Billy. You know literally exactly as much as him on the first minute of the movie as you do the end of the movie. <laughs> There's nothing right. we learn about Billy the whole movie. And the little bit of his face we see, I don't, I don't remember the name of the, the man who played him, but um, crazed looking. It was like the perfect looking face yeah. for Billy. And for again, me. yeah, that was the belief of what a serial killer would have looked like up until 1974. He'd be raving. He'd, you'd identify him in a second. They'd look like that. So yeah, so... So yeah, Billy tries to grab her. He comes through the door. She slams the door into his face. He moans. He lets out this really over-the-top, when he gets hit by a door. And he tries to grab her hair. So it's this chase scene where he's chasing her down the hall. And again, very reminiscent of Michael Myers going after Laurie at the very end of Halloween down the stairs and everything. It's almost the exact same choreography. So let's see. What She runs downstairs and uh, she uh, goes to the basement. They have like a little basement in the sorority house and she locks the door. And you get this really tense scene with Billy pounding on it, coming in, trying to kill her. And then he's yelling and moaning and pounding, and then he just stops. And you hear him walk away. And this is where this is where the big reveal, the big, uh, I wouldn't say twist ending, but the big conclusion is going to happen. Right. She's in the basement, and then she sees someone um, come through the uh, to the front of the house and go through the window. And it ends up being uh, Peter, her boyfriend, mm-hmm. who she, she's already feeling suspect about. Um and then one thing leads to another, and Peter bites it. Yeah, and we don't see that. That's the one. 
it's kind of an odd directing choice. I'm curious why he did that. But yeah, Peter comes in to check on his girlfriend, and she thinks he's the one that's been killing everyone. She kills him, and it's completely off camera. You don't see any of it. You don't see the struggle. You don't see his realization when she starts attacking him. It's kind of odd that they would let, let that out. But I'll, again, I'll go director's choice. He's inventing a genre here, so I'll give it to him. Sure. And so the next thing we see is the cops coming in, and they bust down in the basement, and there's... Uh, there's Olivia Hussey on the floor and Peter's dead in her arms and she's all bloody and, and she wakes up and she looks at them and they've saved her and ostensibly they have caught the killer. Peter is dead. The, the day has been saved and no one's going to be murdered again. Thankfully. Thankfully. And Alex, and except for maybe the kids, the carolers, we can't, can't forget they're still that. Out. Yeah. They're still out there, Roman. Yeah. They're out there. <laughs> they're going to follow Olivia Hussey to the Bahamas as revenge. <laughs> Jaws 4. And they're going to roar at her. <laughs> they're roaring kids in this movie. Okay. So anyway, so the day is saved. Uh, Jess has been saved. She's free to abort or not abort her baby. And the movie ends with her in her bed. All the cops are there and the and Claire's father and all her friends and stuff. And she's been through quite an ordeal. Her boyfriend tried to kill her. Her boyfriend went mad. And everybody in her sorority house is dead. But, you know, the day has been saved and we caught the killer. So it's all good. So they... They leave her there, and she's taking a nap, and as they leave, the, the, the camera just pans over to all the bedrooms where the murders have taken place, and then uh, we fade out, and you hear Billy kind of laughing, and then it pulls away from the house, and it's basically the same shot that started the movie, the big fade-in shot of the house, the crane shot from far away, and you hear the phone ring, which in theory means... The killer's still there. Billy's still there. He's going to start up the phone calls again, and Jess will probably be dead in about two hours. The end. <laughs> I love it. No, it's such it's such a badass ending. And it's like, again, that's... I was reading somewhere they had there had never been a movie in history before where the killer's identity had not been revealed. There had not been a movie like that before where the killer wins in the end. He's going to kill the heroine. And it's it's... It's just a ballsy movie with a ballsy ending, and it's one of those things, I saw it for the first time, and I'm like, this is such a fantastic entry into the horror genre that it just killed me that it's not well-known. Again, the fact that John Carpenter would freely admit he ripped off Halloween from Black Christmas, yet nobody knew about Black Christmas until, like, I would say the 90s or 2000s when I first started other people hearing other people talking about it. And again, maybe that's the internet that did it, I don't know, but it's like, this is such an important horror movie, and nobody knows about it. I know. It's a shame. That ending, it's like the last American version of horror movies. <laughs> Jess has got blue balls, and she's about to die. The blue ball ending. Yeah, it's just, it's a nasty, terrible, wonderful movie. And it's one of these, uh, I usually have good uh, track record with recommending movies to people. This is one that just called to me the first time I saw it, because it's just everything I want in a horror movie. And I can say maybe it's a little dated, but that's that's a word I'll be talking about a lot on this podcast. I don't like the word dated. Like, oh, this movie's dated. Like, people in the 2000s can't under, can't relate to it. I'm like, well, you're not supposed to relate to it. It wasn't made for you. Like, yeah, it's dated. Everything's dated. Things that are dated now, things that are made now will be dated in two months. So it's like, I, you can't use that as a valid criticism, I don't think. I just, it's a movie of its time, for its time, featuring technology and, you know, dialogue and, and cinematography of its time. But it's like... It was so ahead of its time, too, in many ways. I agree. And dated doesn't have to be a bad thing. So so what? That's, that would be my uh, response is so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. 
I don't think in 1974 they care what people are going to think about it in 2018. <laughs> no. Okay, I want to get no. into my I want to get into my Ted Bundy stuff here. But do you have anything else to say about this movie? Any thoughts, feelings, reactions to it? Anything that's kind of stuck in your craw that that came up in this latest viewing? Uh, just to go back to the ending quick. Um, well, going back to uh, to Claire, the body up in the attic, the whole movie with the the wrap around her face. Uh, earlier in the movie, the one shot I loved is when her father's leaving. He's still clueless. And it, it, the camera's like up in the attic watching him drive away in, in a cab. And she's just sitting there like so close yet so far. That really got to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the last last shot of the movie, with you hear the phone ringing. You also see her sitting up there still. Um, again, Canadians are too, you know, they don't know how to look up and she's just chilling there. Um, and the one, there's a cop there, we forgot to mention, just outside, close to the action, like she's gonna die with him out there. And that just makes it even more heartbreaking, I guess, for me. Mm-hmm. All right, here, let's get into the good stuff here. This is where it gets really creepy. And again, this movie stands on its own. I'll put this up next to any classic horror movie. I love it. I love everything about it. I just think it's so well done. And again, hilarious that the guy who made a christmas story also made black christmas which is kind of funny there are some little shots in a christmas story which are not that dissimilar especially the scott farkas stuff like that like he does some of the same camera angles and little reveals that he does in black christmas with billy which is just a fun little thing to think about okay so the history of this movie and this is where it gets really creepy this is where like this may literally bother some people this may you might not like hearing this So Black Christmas came out in 1974. It was a Canadian movie, and again, it was supposed to be called Stop Me, and then they eventually called it Black Christmas, and it had a pretty good run in in Canada. And then they brought it down to the U.S., and the U.S. distributors wanted him to change the ending. They wanted him to make Peter the end of the killer. They wanted him to do all those things, and Bob Clark wouldn't do it. He wouldn't change anything. So the movie was released, but the American uh, distributor, Warner Brothers, didn't have a lot of faith in it. They thought the title Black Christmas would confuse people because we're in the middle of the black exploitation genre. So they were worried it would confuse people. People would think was this like a Pam Greer movie? It was about black exploitation. So they had to change the title. It came out. Uh, let's see. I wrote this down. Did you hear about the alternative titles here? Uh, I have before, but I, I can't think of them off the top of my head. Okay, so yeah, one was Stranger in the House. Then they released it as Silent Night, Evil Night, and it uh, it didn't do a whole lot in the U.S. It was mostly if I remember correctly, in the northern cities, Seattle, you know, Boston, New York, and then along the West Coast, California, it only kind of had a limited run. It didn't really do much in the U.S. And it was quickly forgotten, and critics didn't like it. Like, again, just try being a movie critic in 1973 and seeing a slasher movie, and you've never seen anything like this. It just looks like gratuitous killing and teenagers and college students talking about sex and drugs and stuff. It's like there's nothing... You've ever seen anything like this before? There's no basis of comparison. So it didn't do a lot. But there's one thing. Um, <laughs> okay, we'll go, we'll go back to my uh, my knowledge about famous American serial killers. That serial killer, Ted Bundy, 1974 through about 1978, those were his really big killing years. At one point in his career, the, the, the crime he was most famous for was in 1978. He snuck into a sorority house I got Chi Omega in Florida and uh, killed, attacked four women, ended up killing two of them. Very horrific, brutal, violent crime. Absolutely the most notorious crime he did. And it's really similar to Black Christmas. And I've always had a theory, and this is where it gets eerie here. 
I think he must have seen Black Christmas and filed it away. And I think Kai Omega was him recreating this movie. And I've always suspected that because of the timeline. And that's because this movie came out in 74, 75, mostly on the West Coast. And that's where Ted Bundy lived, lived in uh, Utah, Washington. If this movie is out, he would have seen it. And that is exactly where it was out and when it was out and when he was in his prime killing years. And the reason I think this is, I feel strongly about this and why this has always bothered me is when a few years after he got caught, Ted Bundy would interview the cops and they would say, why, uh, like, what, how can we catch serial killers in the future? How can we do this? And Bundy would say, one thing that serial killers do is they love horror movies. They love slasher movies. They go to them. They see them over and over. It is not a big stretch to picture Ted Bundy watching this movie in Seattle in 75 when it came out there doing whatever those guys do under their raincoats when they're very excited. He probably saw something like this over and over again. And again, when Kai Omega came to happen four years later, it's so similar to this movie. It's just eerie as all hell to me when I think about it, that I have always thought this movie was the blueprint for the Kai Omega killing in 1978. Right down to the fact that, and this is something I'd mentioned earlier in the podcast, and this is where it will get really, really creepy in the Kai Omega killings, the name that Ted Bundy was using at the time was Chris Hagen, H-A-G-E-N, Hagen. This was this was his the alias that he was known as. In this movie, the Jess's boyfriend is named Chris Hayden, H-A-D-E-N, and right there, that's a parallel that's a little too creepy from my point of view. So, again, this may or may not have been his blueprint, his working copy in his head of what he later did in 1978. It's a shame he never mentioned something specific. H- had he ever talked about his, um, uh, Pat, his interest, what he liked, like things like that. Yeah. I mean, he did. He knows he liked horror movies. He liked slasher movies. That's what these guys do. They go to these things and they get off on these movies. It was, some have theorized that the rise of slasher movies and the rise of serial killers were intertwined because it kind of inflamed their passions because all of a sudden the stuff that they'd fantasized about now they could see it on the screen and they would they'd be more likely to try to act it out so it was very well known that horror movies were a big uh interest of his he loved them and it's funny because i'm not the only one who has noticed that comparison Uh, when this movie came out it came out again in 75 in 1978 they moved it to TV. They were going to show this movie on TV. And it was two weeks after the Kai Omega killings in Florida. And when people heard that this movie was going to be shown on TV, they're like, you can't, you cannot show that on TV. That's way too close to what just happened in real life. Ixnay, Ixnay. Like, so they physically pressured the, the network not to show this movie on TV. And that's why it was one of these reasons it never really got a bigger audience. It, it couldn't be shown on TV because of the sensitivity and the timeline. And again, I just think that's, so eerie when I watched this movie, knowing that I, I I suspect Ted Bundy was watching this movie and taking notes. That does make it a lot creepier. Yeah. I heard that before. I, I, from you originally, and you know it is it is a common theory out there. So I definitely believe it. Yeah. I think there's a lot of uh, it. Just there's too much, not proof, but it's it's just too too good not to be true. Yeah, I mean I don't know if it's true or not, but it's yeah, it's just I can think of no other horror movie that has that kind of. Uh, I think maybe it had that real world influence on somebody. And so it's just, it's, it's, watch this movie. Again, the, the tagline of this movie is, uh, if this movie doesn't get under your skin, then your skin's, what is it? Wait a minute. 
What's the tagline? Your skin's on too tight. If this movie doesn't get under your skin, your skin's too tight or something like that. And if that Ted Bundy story doesn't get under your skin, your skin is also too tight. That this is a this is a freaky creeping movie. It's really unnerving and disturbing. And in the horror genre, I can think of no greater choice to be the first horror movie we talk about here on Staff Picks. I agree. Like I said, for 98 minutes, I thought someone was going to break into my house. Yeah. And it would just be my cat that broke into my, into my office. But I said it before, it, feel, it doesn't feel like you're watching a movie. And it sounds like an actual insane person on the phone. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. That, that's just a, and of course, the uh, history of criminals where, oh, they quickly realize after about 74, oh, I guess all killers wouldn't be raving mad like that. But yeah, this is a product of its time. And again, it's a movie I recommend to a lot of people. And this is one I have a lot of success with. My Again, my daughter was was very much creeped out by this movie. My wife likes it. It's, it's a very excellent example of a horror movie that's understated and doesn't just beat you over to death with the blood, that they really just want to bother you. But I do have to say, again, I'm not guaranteeing that every movie we talk about on Staff Picks will be, you know, universally beloved, that people will take to it and watch it and love it. I have one friend, I worked with her a couple years ago, and I recommended this to, to her and her husband, and they watched it. And the next, she came in like the next week, and she's like, that was the worst movie I've ever seen. I cannot believe you were serious. You were trolling us, telling us that Black Christmas was a good movie, right? And I'm like, no, it's really good. And she's like, it was so slow. It was dull. Nothing happened. She's like, I'm never taking a movie recommendation for you again. So I'm a little gun shy on this one because I do have a like a one out of 20 failure rate on this one. I normally don't have strong failures, but that was like a, a, a hard fail. So this is one I, I really hope people like when they see it. If you don't like it, please don't hate me. Just appreciate its uh, authenticity and its importance in the world of horror. Because everybody who was involved with horror in the 70s or 80s acknowledges that this movie was the first modern slasher movie. It made a big impact on their lives, and they all did little homages to it. In fact, I mean, John Saxon in A Nightmare on Elm Street, I'm sure he was cast because he was in Black Christmas. So this is a very, very important movie, and I cannot really, cannot say enough about it. I just love it. I agree. And Mara, I want the name and number of that former coworker because me, Billy, Billy, Agnes, Baby, all the kids, and Bruce the Shark are going to make a phone call to her. You're going to get the shark, too. That's impressive. Yep. All right, let's see here. Do we got anything else? I'm going through my notes. They, I want to make sure I have uh, done right by Black Christmas. I think I've said everything here. Yeah, I don't think I have. I think I've done everything I can possibly do for this movie in my goal to get people to appreciate underloved and uh, underrated movies, or again, Black Christmas, unknown, man. This is movie just, it's unknown. Okay, I will say this. I, I know this. If you, do you know anything about the remake? Uh, I haven't seen it. Um, I don't I don't hate remakes as much as you. I mean, I, I generally don't like them. I like when they can bring about a movie that's unknown and make it known. Mm-hmm. Um but obviously, you and I had already known about the original Black Christmas prior to the remake. Yeah. Uh, what do you? What other information do you have about it? Okay, I just did some research right before Wikipedia is my, is my friend here, and I looked up some uh, history on Black Christmas on the remake. So in the remake, what they do is they give Billy an entire backstory, how he has like parents that don't love him and they abuse him, and I think his mother's name is Agnes. Wonderful. And, yeah. So they like absolutely ruin. The point of Black Christmas that you don't know anything about the killer by making it all about the killer's backstory. And it like so that, you know, everything about Billy, you know, his entire backstory, you know, everything about him. And then it's much bloodier and it's much more based on jump scares and slashing and blood. And it's like 
Like, you think the movie Black Christmas is scary. That, just hearing what they did to Black Christmas in the remake, that absolutely bothers me because it's like, don't people understand why this movie was so good? Because the exact stuff they didn't do, and then they had to ruin all that in the remake. So anyway, I'm preaching to the choir. I wasn't going to see Black Christmas to start. I'm not going to see it now, but it's just exhibit A right there and why this movie was so special that everything that made it amazing and made it stood out, they changed in the remake. So I don't know, whatever. Did Rob Zombie make it? No, no, not Rob Zombie. I know, he should have, though. Might as well. <laughs> oh, now we're getting into the Halloween remakes. This is a whole different subject. Exactly. <laughs> okay, do you have anything more to add about Black Christmas before we sign off and you go back to your lonesome, quiet house with just you and your cats and your creaking doors? Um, I don't, Have you heard of the new remake that they're making? They're actually remaking a remake of the remake. Why? <laughs> I mean, no, I haven't heard about it. Are you serious? You're not just pulling my leg? It's Tyler Perry presents Black Christmas. <laughs> I thought that was a they're setup. They're making a black exploitation. Yeah, so they're finally doing the black exploitation. Yes, that's good. The, the, the one thing I, I will say is that uh, I do love that we both have something in common with Ted Bundy. We can clearly say that. Oh, you mean that we've watched a horror movie? Yes. <laughs> I'm also from Seattle, so I got, yeah, I got two things on you. That's true. <laughs> All right. I think I'm probably going to sign off, though, unless we have anything else to add. Just uh, just imploring people, again, on this on Staff Picks, we're going to watch a lot. We're going to talk about a lot of comedies. I love comedies. Absolutely love talking about comedies. A lot of dramas, a lot of suspense stuff. But horror movies are really my bread and butter just because I file these away and I just remember them. And I know, I always know which movie begat which movie begat which movie and which where the homages and inspirations are. So, again, if I could just implore you you may not like horror movies you may not want to give them a chance you may think they're too violent bloody whatever i i hope a couple people will take my advice or take our advice and watch this one because i think black christmas is a very special movie that should be ranked right up there with halloween as you know the grandfather and the father of all modern slasher movies because they really are that important and that big a deal and if you respect the genre at all and how it developed i think you have to at least know about it I hope so, too. It doesn't get the love that it deserves. I mean, from guys like us, it does. But, you know, in the general population, most people have never heard of it. Perhaps they've heard of the remake. I'm sorry to bring it up again. Yeah. But, yeah, I hope after this podcast, a lot of your listeners who haven't seen it go out and see it. And unlike your former coworker, love it. Hopefully, yeah. And I will say, just as a side note, it would be amazing if more people knew more than two things about Margot Kidder other than she was in Superman and she ended up in a dumpster. I would love if they also knew she was in Black Christmas. So let's add a third thing to the Margot Kidder trifecta, that she really is good in this. And uh, she's perfect she's for the great. role. Yeah, she's really funny. And there's a couple lines of hers in there that I'm not going to quote, but she and Mrs. Mack make some, have some legitimately really funny scenes in this movie. For a movie that's not necessarily a comedy, but again, Bob Clark, the uh, creator of Christmas Story and the classic Porky's, of course, is going to have a little comedy in there. All right, I want to thank you, Mike, for joining me. Again, it's always nice to talk to a younger version of me. It's nice to whip out the old time machine every now and then again here. So I appreciate it, and hopefully we can have you on for more of my uh, my horror movies. Again, just letting people know, I used to have a list. It was very well known on MySpace about 10 great horror movies that most people have never seen. And this is only the first of them. We're going to talk about all 10, and I may get Mike back for a couple more of these because, again, he knows that list as well as anybody. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Mario, thanks for having me on. Um, and uh, don't be such a bitch pig. <laughs> Thank you. All right. 
As always, this is Mario Lanza signing off from Staff Picks. Uh, again, if you uh, have a movie you'd like to discuss, if you'd like to be on the show yourself, you could uh, be a, join my patron page at patreon.com slash Mario Lanza. You can email me with feedback anytime. I love to hear what kind of movies you would like to talk about, or if you think I am a terrible podcaster and you have criticism on my voice or something, that's fine. I just like emails. I don't care what they say. But you can email me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can reach me on Twitter, at Mario J. Lanza. So, as always, that's one more underrated, underloved movie down. And I have hundreds more to go. So, I will talk to you again the next time. I believe our next podcast is uh, the Brady Bunch movie. That should be a fun one coming up. It should be a nice transition. Black Christmas to the Brady Bunch movie. That's, the, that's as God intended it. And as always, I will talk to you. <laughs> Thank you for joining Hello? Who is this?